Matthew 7. We arrive uh, this morning here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. It uh, probably one of the best known and most frequently misapplied of the uh, teachings of our Lord Jesus. I think most people can somewhat recite from heart the uh, statement in verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged, right? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Some mistakenly thinking here that Jesus is prohibiting all evaluation of other people's teaching, their beliefs, their morals, their behaviors. Sincere Christians, sometimes misunderstanding and misapplying this, would teach that it's wrong to criticize or evaluate anyone. After all, Jesus said, do not judge, right? So who am I to form any kind of evaluation of anybody else? Others who have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ at all can still quote this verse and frequently do as a cloak for their own wickedness. They have no interest in Christ. They do not know the Savior. And yet they know enough to know that this is a very effective way to push back on those that would attempt to make any kind of biblical evaluation of their own moral condition. They'd say, you can't judge me. Even Jesus said, do not judge. Even if their behavior or beliefs are clearly condemned by Scripture, they would say, don't judge, don't judge. However, these assertions by naive and misunderstood, misunder, under taught Christians, maybe that's a good way to say it, or just plain stubborn and wicked people really ignore this passage and what it has to say. The grammar here is clear. Jesus' illustration in verses 3 through 5 about hypocrisy. Jesus' own teaching later here in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 15, with regard to discerning who are the true and false teachers. Jesus' own warning about paying attention to his teaching and choosing correctly here a little bit later, verses 24 and following, and then even later in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, where he talks about how to deal with a sinning brother, all tell us that whatever this passage means, it cannot mean that we are prohibited from all forms of judging. I've entitled the message this morning, The Right Way to Judge. The Right Way to Judge. As we understand this passage, I think we will understand what it is that Jesus would have us do with regard to judging. Now, the word judge, I guess we probably should start with that. The word judge is a common Greek word, and it has a fairly wide range of meaning. It can mean things like analysis, it can mean evaluation, it can mean condemnation, or it can mean punishment. So you can see the spectrum is reasonably wide. And in all cases like this, context is what rules. 
The context in which the word is used lets us know whether it is being viewed positively or negatively. Judging. Now, when we arrive here at chapter 7 and this section on judging, for some it seems like a, a rather jarring change of topics. We have been working away here in the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to remember when this was preached and then later written down, there were no chapter headings, there were no verse headings or, or so forth. And so this was just completely running together as one long section. And so when you would read this, you would think, well, how do we go from talking about money and worry to talking about judging again? How do, or how do these, these subjects fit together? It seems like Jesus kind of turned a rather sharp corner here on us. But that's really not true. Actually, what he is doing is he is returning to a topic that he introduced back at the beginning of chapter 6. And that is the topic of hypocrisy. You'll notice in uh, chapter 6 and verse 1, he talks about beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then he, he goes on to talk about those hypocrites, those who, who sound a trumpet, as it were, when they give, those who pray in such a way to, to be noticed by others. He speaks about the proper way to pray, and then he goes on to speak in verse 16 and following about those who fast in order to be noticed by others, and the topic is hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And then he begins to talk about wealth, and he begins to talk about worry, and these are also really issues related again to, to hypocrisy. That is, it, it is the hypocrisy of those who claim to know God and yet act as though they don't know Him by their attitude towards their wealth and their attitude towards worry. So when he returns here in chapter 7 to the topic of hypocrisy again, he's really not, returning, he's not turning a corner. He's merely continuing with the general thrust of his message. Over and over and over again from chapter 6 and now into chapter 7, he is, he is continually contrasting what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, versus those who were the most religious people of the day, the Pharisees. You remember he even began back in chapter 5 and verse 20 saying that unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, there is no place for you in the kingdom. And so he is here by practical example in chapter 6 and chapter 7, this early part of chapter 7, talking about what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is warning against arrogant, rigid, self-righteous judgmentalism. He is warning about that which destroys Christian unity. He is warning about the same kind of judgmentalism that was associated with the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Don't be a Pharisee, don't judge me. We kind of understand that. It is this attitude of judgmentalism, it is this critical spirit that finds its source in a outward, self-righteous, legalistic kind of religious system. 
And that was the system that the Pharisees had constructed. They had formed a system by which they could then trumpet their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. It's only in an environment of legalism, an environment of self-righteous legalism, that the whole issue of judgmentalism can flourish. It is the soil in which the weed grows well. Now, Jesus addresses the topic here because it's common to man. Judgmentalism comes easily to all of us. You don't have to practice it. You don't have to work at it. You don't even have to be taught it, although you can be taught it. You can develop the craft to a high level with proper instruction and practice. But it comes naturally to the human heart. Think of it this way. A drowning man, they, they warn you, and if you're training for lifeguard and so forth, if you are going out to rescue a drowning man, they, they warn you on how to approach them. Don't get too close. Don't come right at them because they will grab you and push you under the water and try to climb up on top of you in order to get out of the water themselves. Well, judgmentalism kind of works like that. There is this this false understanding that that underlies it, which is that if I can just push someone else down, then that will lift me up. I I will be better, I will feel better, I will be thought better if I can push other people down. I can rise above everyone else by pushing everyone else down. I mean, after all, we can just look around and say, yeah, I've got my problems, but I'm not as bad as, right? And then we start naming them off. Push them down as a way to push yourself up. And that's really what judgmentalism is all about. Pushing other people down in an attempt to push yourself up. Now, this passage is filled with prohibitions. Commands that say, don't do this. But I want to I structure our look at this passage in kind of the opposite way. I'm, a, I'm presupposing the proper interpretation in order to create the structure. So in edit, in, in, rather than d- to craft a sermon this morning that says, don't do this and don't do that, I want to flip it and I want to say, do this and do this. There's a right way to judge. And so from this passage, we want to learn the right way to judge. So what I have for you this morning are two essential characteristics, two essential characteristics that all Christians must employ so that we will learn to judge rightly. Okay? Two essential characteristics that we must employ so that we can learn to judge rightly. Are you ready? First one, we must judge humbly. We must judge humbly. Follow along here. Jesus says in verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. He gives us a, a present imperative here. The idea is that we are not to make it a practice of judging other people. We're not to make it a practice of judging other people. That is, we are to stop judging 
when the purpose behind our judgment is to criticize their motives or to inflate our own opinion of ourselves. Stop doing that. Don't do that sort of judgment. Beloved, listen. When we judge another believer in that way, what we are doing is taking to ourselves the prerogative of God. We are placing ourselves in the position of the divine. That is, that we are, we are saying that we can somehow look into someone else's heart and make an evaluation of them. That we are the lawgiver. We are the one who establishes right and wrong, and thus we are able to hold others to account. The Apostle Paul is very clear about why this cannot happen. He says it over in Romans chapter 14 and verse 4, where there he's addressing a problem in the church at Rome where they're having an issue over one's dietary restrictions, right? Meat or no meat. And in verse 4, Paul says to the church there, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are you to do such a thing? Who do you think you are to judge the servant of another? To his own master, Paul says, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul there is very clear. He's saying, who do you think you are to enter into the role of the master? To judge the slave or the servant of that master? You've got to be kidding me. Back off. God will take care of it. God will make them stand. And it's that kind of judgment that Paul's addressing, that Jesus is addressing here. Do not judge. Stop judging so that you will not be judged. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Don't do this. Avoid God-like judgment of others because the result of it will that it, is that it will bring upon you God's standard of judgment. God will evaluate you. He will measure you, a commercial term there. He will pay you back in the same way. Jesus uses what's called the divine passive here. It's a particular verb tense, and it's, it's designed to communicate that the judgment will come and it will fall on the last day. When you stand before God, He will begin to evaluate you with the same kind of critical eye that you have employed on others. And beloved, if there's anything we want from God, anything we want from God, It is grace and mercy, not judgment, right? Not fairness. Don't ever ask God to be fair with you. That would be the worst thing that you could ask for, okay? You want God to show you mercy. You want God to show you grace. You do not want God to show you justice or fairness, right? So be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you do. 
Notice earlier that Jesus, he, he, he emphasizes the same thing with regard to forgiveness in chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15. He, there he says, you need to forgive, you need to be of a forgiving spirit because if you don't forgive others, verse 15, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. So there's a very real sense here in which that which we deal out to others, we can expect in return from God. Bible commentator um, Leon Morris speaks this way, and he, he says his following. He says, to be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. Kind of an interesting way to summarize this. To be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. And you don't want that, believe me. Judging other people from an attitude of superiority is dangerous. It is dangerous. It invites God to treat us in a similar fashion. But it is also difficult. Even if you choose to do that, it's a a difficult thing to do. And the reason it's difficult to judge others is because your own faults get in the way. It's difficult to see things clearly. Your, your eyesight's just not that good. And so you're bound to, to mess up your judgment. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye, right? You're looking to to get something out of your brother's eye. You're you're scrutinizing. Again, the idea behind look is, is why are you looking, another present tense verb, why are you looking, not just a glance, but staring, trying to to see and to get this speck out of your brother's eye when you've got this gigantic log hanging out of your own eye? It's crazy scrutinizing the minor faults of other people, all the while overlooking this thing that sticks out of the front of your head. Now, the word choice here is really quite interesting. Speck, karphos in the Greek, it it means a small splinter or a small piece of chaff. Okay, so it's it's not a speck of dust. It's really something's there. Versus the log, dakos. It's a, a massive timber that's used to support the roof. It's kind of like the main timber that runs in the roof line. Or the gigantic uh, log or, or beam that they would use to bar the doors. So that's the picture. right? Someone has a small splinter. And maybe this comes, by the way, from Jesus' upbringing in the, you know, as a carpenter's son. Right? The idea of, of a piece of sawdust kind of gets in your eye versus you've got this massive beam they've been working on here to support the roof of a house. But, but there it is, a little piece of sawdust in someone's eye, and you've got this you know, 27-foot telephone pole hanging out of the front of your head. Jesus intentionally draws this kind of contrast. It's absurd. It's humorous. And it's designed to drive home the point. I mean, compared to your fault, what is the speck in someone else's eye? And yet, here we go, trying to pick it out, right? And, you know, we try to get a little closer to get a good look at it. Dunk, you know, they get hit in the head with this beam. And you turn your head sideways and you whack them in the side of the head. It's just the whole picture is ludicrous. Ludicrous. 
By the way, Jesus resorts to this kind of humor on more than one occasion. It's an effective communication tool. Remember last week we had the picture of of, uh, Father Time fretting and worrying, right, pacing back and forth, the same kind of absurd picture. Later on, Jesus will talk about a camel passing through the eye of a needle and how foolish that is. This is one of his word pictures here. And he is saying, why do you do this? Why do you look at the, at the splinter in your brother's eye and you don't even notice the roof beam sticking out of the front of your head? Why? We have a perverse tendency to critique others with what we will excuse in ourselves, right? A perverse tendency to critique in others what we excuse in ourselves. And that's what Jesus is after. He's saying, listen, don't go after the, the splinter until you've dealt with the beam. How can you say, verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and, and behold, pay attention, listen to me, the log is in your own eye. It's a ridiculous request. You come alongside to help. Let me, brother, let me help you with that in your life. Wham! No, seriously, sit down here. Let me help. Bang! You know? Stay away from me. I can't, help, I can't use much more of your help. How can you say that? Why does a person scrutinize the minor sins of other people? while overlooking their own more heinous offenses. Why is that? Why is it that that we're so blind? How can that be? Jesus answers his own question in verse 5. You hypocrite. That's how it can be. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's the hypocrisy here. The hypocrisy of it all is is our profound ignorance of our own fault combined with an arrogant presumption that we know what's wrong with other people. That's the issue. We are profoundly blind when it comes to our own problems, our own shortcomings, our own sins and failures, and yet, at the same time, we presume to know exactly what's wrong with everybody else. Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. That is the approach of a hypocrite. Stop. Slow down. Pray. Deal with your own issues before rushing on ahead to dispense advice and criticism to everybody else. It's as simple as that. Who can see clearly? The answer in the Sermon on the Mount is is those that are profoundly aware of their own sin. Those that, that mourn and weep over their own sin, chapter 5 and verse It is them that are qualified to help others. 
Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says there, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Notice in verse 5 that Jesus talks about taking the splinter out of your brother's eye. The answer here is not to just say, I can't judge. It's your problem, you know, whatever. Akuna matata, right? No, I wasn't speaking in tongues. That was in, anyway. <laughs> Jesus says, no, 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 no. Deal with your issue. Be a spiritual person. And then you can come alongside and help those that are having trouble. You want an illustration of the, this kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is condemning here? We have a really clear example of it in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Don't turn there, just listen. 2 Samuel, come, 2 Samuel 12 comes after 2 Samuel 7. It's my first exegetical insight. Okay? And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the place where the Davidic covenant is found, where God gives that incredible promise to David that he will, that he will make through his son Solomon an enduring kingdom that can never be taken away. And David responds there with, with such humility. Oh God, who am I that you would take me and, and make of me and my offspring such an amazing promise? Well, somehow along the way, uh, David forgot about that. Success bred a certain arrogance in David. Power and wealth and victory over his enemies puffed him up. Until one day, according to the Scriptures, it was in the spring, the time of the year when kings go out to battle. The David is home, wandering around on the roof of his house, and his eyes go to a place they shouldn't be. You know the story, right? And he takes another man's wife. And he not only takes her, but he then, in order to cover his guilt, arranges for her husband to be executed by putting him into the front of the battle and then withdrawing and leaving him to be surrounded and killed. David's plan seems to go perfectly. Uriah is killed. David waits the appropriate amount of time for for mourning, and then he takes Bathsheba into his harem as his wife. All looks good. Beware your sins will find you out. God will not let David go. And so sometime a year or so later, God sends to David the prophet Nathan to tell him a story. And Nathan comes and he, and he tells David this story about these two men that live in a city. And one is very wealthy with, with tremendous resources. And the other is just a poor man who has a, a small lamb. And, and this lamb has become such a, a part of the man's family that he even keeps it in his house with him. And he, he treats it almost like a child. And a guest comes from far away. And they're, 
This is appropriate in that day and age. There needs to be a feast to, to provide for and honor this guest. So rather than the wealthy man taking a, a sheep from one of his massive flocks, he takes the man's only lamb. He slaughters it and he feeds it to his guest. David hears this story and he is absolutely outraged. He cannot believe that someone would be so heartless, so, so careless, so cruel, that they would use their power and position with such arrogance. He pronounces the man should die. Nathan looks at him. You've got to be one of the most courageous men you'll find in the Bible. He looks him right in the eye and he says, David, thou art that man. Thou art that man. David, in his hypocrisy with the beam sticking straight out of the front of his head, he hears the story. And he pronounces the judgment on that man. And yet, all the while, David's guilt is profound. David is broken in repentance by his accuser. And God says, David, you will not die. Your sin has been taken away. Listen. If the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, could be caught in such a trap of hypocrisy. So can I, and so can you. This is not a small matter. This is a serious, serious matter. Get the log out of your own eye before you go around critically, judgmentally evaluating other people. Beloved, it can fall down to this sort of thing. That is to, to criticize people's parenting. You know, I've noticed over the years that the, the greatest experts on parenting are those without children. <laughs> Followed closely by those who have young children. You know, they approach parenting like a factory. You, have, you put the inputs in, proper inputs give you a predictable output, right? An outcome. All we need to do is raise our children according to these formulas, and we're guaranteed to have these godly little children walking around, right? And when we see someone whose child is wobbling a little, we self-righteously say, obviously, they didn't do their job right. If they'd have done it like I do it, their kid would turn out perfect like mine. That kind of an approach creates an atmosphere of externalism, a legalistic approach that causes a lot of damage. Get the log out of your own eye. Come to see your own shortcomings and failures before you start going around telling people how they ought to raise their kids. A little bit of grace goes a long way. We can be tempted to, to critically assess other people's motives. I know why they did that. And they start to tell you all the reasons why the person did what they did, really. You can look inside their heart and know what their motives are. You've got better vision than Superman, right? Because you really don't even know what your motives are all the time for what you do. 
And yet we say we can discern other people's motives. We know why they do what we do, they do, and, and we criticize them for it. How hypocritical. How self-righteous, how judgmental is that? Listen, it's easy to fall into this kind of a trap. Very easy. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Listen, all judgments that we make about people they necessarily have to be reserved and they can never be final. We don't know. We can't see all the way down to the depth of the human heart. We're not sure why everybody does what they do. Restraint, humility, compassion. These are the kinds of things that need to characterize our judgment. Jesus is not saying you can't judge anything. He's saying that your approach needs to be one of humility. We need to judge with humility. Get the log out of our eye, and then we can begin to see clearly other people. Humble our hearts before the Lord, and then we can begin to come alongside and be a real help. Our inspection must first be preceded by introspection. Our inspection needs to first be preceded by introspection. Look in before you look out. Look in before you look out. We have to judge with humility. Secondly, Jesus says we have to judge wisely. We have to judge with humility and we must judge wisely. Verse 6. Verse 6 is given to us here to, to provide some balance. Some balance. We're to approach judgment with, a, with an attitude and a principle of, of humility, but if that is the only approach that we have, then, then we're in danger of committing the error of gullibility. So Jesus gives us some balance here. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He says here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7 that we are to approach judgment with, with humility. With the balancing factor of so that we don't become some sort of religious simpleton, oblivious to all the dangers of, of genuine spiritual and moral evil is that we have to judge wisely. Simply put, we have to be able to distinguish the dogs and the hogs. The dogs and the hogs. I give it to you that way because it's memorable. You have to distinguish the dogs and the hogs. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Unlike our day and age, in which dogs are pampered members of the household, 
Yes, indeed. I will confess I once spent $1,000 at a doggy dermatologist. (laughs) Then I finally repented and woke up and thought, what in the world am I doing? This is a dog. In most parts of the world, by the way, dogs are, they're not uh, welcome creatures. They're wild. They're scavengers. They're vicious. They eat from the garbage dump. The Proverbs talk about them as one who, by nature, vomits and then turns around and consumes it again. They're despicable creatures, filthy I was trying to think of a modern equivalent. The best I could do was a coyote. There's something you to throw rocks at. They're a pack that you don't want to be caught alone with. Despicable creatures. Pigs or swine are considered filthy in the Old Testament. They're ceremonially unclean. There's something to be avoided. To to eat the flesh is to commit an abomination, according to Isaiah. Two more unclean, undesirable animals you couldn't imagine. And so Jesus puts them together here, the dogs and the hogs, and and they come in the Scriptures to, to symbolize those who are hardened in their sin and their unbelief and are engaged in a mocking of the Christian message. Dogs and hogs. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul writes, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, It has happened to them, that is the false teachers, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Revelation 22, and verse 15. Outside the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. The dogs and the hogs. Jesus says before them, you're not to give what is holy. You're not to cast your pearls. This expression, what is holy, is a kind of an interesting expression. I think it's likely that it's a a reference to the portion of the sacrificial meat that belonged to the priesthood. When a worshiper brought their, their sacrifice there, a certain portion of it was consumed by fire on the altar, and the balance of it was reserved to feed the priest and their family. According to Exodus chapter 22 and verse 31, an animal killed in the field by wild predators could not be offered as a sacrifice on the altar. It was to be thrown to the dogs, Exodus 22 verse 31. So I think what Jesus is talking about here is he say, he's saying we are not, the idea here would be as horrible as if you were to take sacrificial meat that which is holy, and you were to treat it as if it were profane, you were to throw it out for the dogs to eat. That which was a, has been sacrificed and designated for God. It's a sacrilege. It's, it's ridiculous. No one would ever think of doing that. 
It also speaks about pearls. Pearls in the ancient world were exceedingly valuable. They were to be protected. They were to be preserved, just like sacred meat. It would be incongruous to to attempt to feed pearls to swine in the same way it would be incongruous to feed sacred meat to wild dogs. You just don't do it. Pearls before swine. It's an interesting statement. One writer supposes, and he's probably as close as anybody, that, that pearls kind of resemble peas or acorns, and, and they're, they're the kind of the normal food for the hogs. And so if he would throw them into the pen, the hogs would grab a hold of them greedily and, and begin to munch on them. But after a little bit, they'd figure out it wasn't what they were used to eating. It wasn't what they wanted. And so they would spit them from their mouth and, and turn angrily. And if you've ever seen a full-size hog with the tusks and everything, you don't want to be in the pen with it when it's not happy. It spit them out angrily, turn on you, tear you apart. So what's Jesus talking about here? I think the sacrificial meat and I think the pearls are just two expressions for the same thing. Two expressions, it means the same thing. That which is holy and priceless. That which is holy and priceless, you are not to indiscriminately give away. You're not to give it to those who are unholy and those who have no desire or appreciation of it. So in Matthew's gospel, what is holy, what is priceless? The answer is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the gospel of the kingdom. That is the pearl, according to chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, for which one must sell everything they have in order to purchase it. What Jesus is saying here is that when you give to a person who is hardened in their sin and their unbelief, that which they do not want, don't value, and they themselves scorn it, spit it out, turn around, and tear you up. He's saying there are certain people in certain circumstances that we are to withhold the gospel from. We are to withhold the gospel. Keep it back. Which people? Which people are we to, to hold back the gospel from? The answer is those who are hardened in heart against it. Now, this is kind of radical. We don't really think this way very often. We think about, you know, we got to preach the gospel to everybody, and we do. But there comes a time when for certain people, they have demonstrated that they are a dog or a hog, that they have no interest in the gospel, that to give them the gospel is... is for them to profane it. Remember, the gospel is about a person. It is not just a a proposition. It's not just a, a philosophical system. It's not just some ideas. It's the story of a person, the very Son of God, what He came and what He did. And there are people who are so hard against it that they will reject it They will turn and spurn it and tear you apart. When you encounter such a person, Jesus says, judge wisely 
and don't do it. Keep it back. Now, we're going to turn quickly here. I want to show you a bunch of passages here because you're going to see this played out. So let's start moving. Matthew 10 and verse 14. Matthew 10 and verse 14. Here Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples, and he's giving them their instructions on how they are to go about on their preaching tour. And he says you're going to go into a a town, and you're to enter it and, and into a household within the town. You're to give them their greeting. And it says in verse 13, if the, if the house is worthy, it will, it will uh, give it your blessing of peace, but it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that city or that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. There are some who will not receive you, some who are not worthy, just turn and walk away. There are white fields for harvest. Find them. Chapter 12, verse 39. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Verse 39, he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. You want another sign? No. I have given you more than enough. No more signs for you. You're cut off. Chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus begins to speak in parables, and his, his disciples come to him, and they say, well, why do you speak in parables? Verse 11, Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. I speak in parables in order to conceal the gospel of the kingdom from them. Matthew 26, verse 62. Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest. All kinds of accusations are being made, false witnesses coming forward. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. He kept silent. No answer. No gospel preaching there. Silence. Luke 23 and verse 9. Jesus before Herod. Verse 9, chapter 23 of Luke's Gospel. And Herod questioned him at some length, but he, that is Jesus, answered him nothing. Why? Because Herod had not responded to the preaching of John the Baptist the entire time he had him in prison, according to Mark chapter 6 and verse 20. Not a word for Herod. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Paul's first missionary journey, Pisidian Antioch, on a south-central Turkey. Paul preaches there, the first part of chapter 13, this rather lengthy sermon there in the synagogue. They say, come back and tell us some more. He says, I'll be back next Sabbath. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
You're done. You don't get any more. Chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. Paul and Corinth, second missionary journey. Paul's been teaching and preaching in the synagogue in Corinth. The end of verse 5, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 6, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. He went next door and started a church. No more gospel for you. Acts chapter 28. Verses 24 and following. Paul in Rome. The Jews from Rome come to hear him, to hear his gospel. He preaches to them, verse 23, about the kingdom of God. Verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And he he quotes Isaiah here saying that basically you are blind and deaf and dumb. Therefore, verse 28, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. No more for you. Titus, chapter 3. Verses 10 and 11. Instructions to the young pastor there in Crete. Titus, chapter 3. Verses 10 and 11. Paul says there, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Do not continue on with him. Warn him once, warn him twice, and then cut him off. No more gospel for him. Back to Matthew 7. Verse 6. Do not give. Do not give. This is not helpful advice. This is a very solemn, very sober, and a very direct command. Do not give it. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we faithful to Him. We are not to give what is holy to those who will despise it. Now, we can't know who they are until we try. This is, not a, this is not a refuge for those who are tongue-tied with the gospel. Ah, you know, I better not say anything because they might despise it. We don't know who they are until we try. And try again. But when they show themselves at some point to be hardened and antagonistic, we are to move on to more fertile fields. That's what Jesus commands. Judge wisely. Figure out, is this person a scoffer to be avoided? Or are they merely one who is naive and needs to know the truth?
Let's talk about applying all of this. A few ideas. Question, really. How can we determine who is hardened to the gospel? How can you determine such a thing? The answer is that it can only come with time. The only way to know is to try and to, and to see the result. And if after a, a period of time and the response that, that one receives, after a sincere and, and repeated attempt to bring the good news to that person, that they respond with hostility and violence, we're to turn away. We're to turn away. Wisdom is what's required. Now, some of you may be thinking, what about Paul? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he's talking about God placing him into service. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And so if Paul's like that and, and they didn't turn away from him, how can we turn away from anybody? But notice what Paul says. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And I think that's a very important point. Ignorance seems to be a key factor. As long as a person remains in ignorance, then we need to clear up the ignorance with the gospel. It's when they are no longer in ignorance of the gospel, that is, that they now understand the gospel, and they understand the claims of Christ upon them through the gospel, and they willingly at that point reject it and turn from it and blaspheme it. It's at that point they have shown themselves to be hardened and were to turn away. Ignorance is a key. Third question, what about family and friends? This is the hard one. What about family and friends? There's probably no more emotionally charged and difficult question than that. I think we have to approach it in the same way. Listen, Jesus said the gospel would divide families. History has proven his words to be true. For that family member or that friend with whom you have labored in the gospel with sincerity and humility to the place where they have come to fully understand what it is. And with that full knowledge, they reject it violently. Then from that family member, you must turn. You are not to continue to throw that which is sacred, that which is priceless, Jesus Christ himself, at their feet to watch them trample on him and then turn and tear you apart. That may divide you from them. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, including family relations, and lose his own soul? Hard, hard decision to make, but there are those times. Last question. What about you? Where are you this morning? Is your heart hard to the gospel? Have you come here week after week listening to the preaching of the Word, 
to the place where you understand what it is we're talking about. You're no longer just checking it out. You're no longer just investigating. You know what the gospel is, and you know what God is calling upon you to do. He's calling upon you to repent of your sin and and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, and you will be saved. And yet, with that full knowledge, you persist in your hardness of heart. Are you a dog? Are you a hog? Have you been cut off from the gospel? Beloved, don't turn away. Do not turn away. Every time you stick your fingers in your ears, the scale on your heart grows thicker. There comes a time when there are no more choices, no more chances. Today is the day of salvation. I call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of your sin right now, where you are. Call out to him to save you. And then come tell me what you've done. Let's pray. Father, there is a soberness to this passage that takes us deep into the heart of unbelief. And it's a scary thing to see. Such wickedness, such obstinacy, such rebellion, such hatred for that which is good and pure and wholesome and true. That it would leave one outside of the grace of God. I pray, my Father, for those here this morning who do not know Jesus Christ. Perhaps they've wandered in just now or Perhaps they've been coming for a long time. Oh, Lord, may your spirit move in their hearts even now to grant them repentance and belief. Father, may they call out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save them. May they flee from damnation that lies like a sword hanging over their head. May you grant them new life. And may you grant us who know Christ the courage, the humility, the love to speak the gospel to people and to refrain from entering into censorious judgment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Transform us, we pray, by your grace, through your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.